Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Joe Kender, Senior Vice President for University Relations at St. Joseph's University. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Brent. How are you? It's a real pleasure for me. Well, I am so uh, excited to learn more about your story, and I have to acknowledge that uh, this was one of those um, six degrees of Mike Goodwin sort of uh, moments within the advancement space. And so many of uh, our listeners would have heard my episode with Mike Goodwin, who has held senior leadership roles um, at Oregon State and Georgetown, among others. And uh, and, and you and Mike uh, crossed paths, I know, for a number of years in, in your career. So we'll make sure to dive into that as well. Yeah, the Mike Goodwin uh, coaching tree is far and wide. There's no doubt about that. I love it. I love it. Well, before we get into all of that, I want to start by asking my favorite question, uh, which is, would you be willing to take me back to junior or senior year of high school? Who is that Joe? Where was he? And what led him to Lehigh University? Yeah, um, well, I'm I'm the product of of parents, both of whom were in higher ed. Uh, My father was a professor at Lehigh. Um, So I grew up on that campus, literally. from the time I was three years old, all the way through high school, obviously. And then my mother was vice president for student affairs at what is now known as the Sales University. It's a small Catholic university. It's doing quite well. Both are in that Lehigh Valley, sort of Allentown, Bethlehem area of, of Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, so for me, you know, Lehigh was was really the place. Uh, I really, really didn't have too many other institutions on my mind. And, you um, so, you know, it was about, you know, from my perspective, um, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I took a BA in international relations, with a minor in economics and kind of rolled from there. But um, Lehigh, as you can see, was sort of indelible, an indelible point in my life. And so usually um, I would say something like, you know, none of us really knew what advancement was and somehow we all stumbled into it, but maybe that wasn't the case in your world. No, it actually was. Uh, I didn't know anything about fundraising or development. My, my father, I always joke, was a was a professor's professor. Um, you know, even, you know, he passed away about a year ago, but he would call me and he would say to me, what do you do? Like, how does this work? Like, he had no, <laughs> literally no understanding of what that part of the operation did. He was focused on his students. He was focused on his research. So honestly, I, I didn't I didn't know much about it. However, you know, growing up um, as I did, you know, the topic of higher ed was on the, at the dinner table all the time, right? And I think through osmosis, I just really began to understand the business of higher education. And if you really think about it, you know, from an advancement perspective, the more you understand the business model and faculty governance and how programs are developed, et cetera, et cetera, I think the better it makes you at your job. So I had that kind of going into it. Little did I know when I, when I started, you know, many years ago. I think it's fascinating, though, to to suggest that your dad, with that experience, didn't really understand advancement. I mean, what does that tell us about the connection? You know, on one yeah. hand, you might say, and that's the way it should be, because no. he's focused on what he's focused on. But you could also say, wait a second, what if most faculty members don't really understand what advancement does, what are the implications, good or bad, if that is the case? No, that's a really good point you're making. And, you know, the first thing I would say, that was a different era, different time. But even today, you know, at at St. Joseph's University or Georgetown or any of the institutions that I've worked, certainly I'm sure it's across the board, you know, we all know this, there are faculty who really understand it. 
and and really want to dive in uh, and play a role. And there are others, frankly, who you know hear about it, know about it, certainly, but really don't pay attention because you know it doesn't really affect their lives, so to speak, or they don't know how it could affect their life. Um, and and I think that's sort of the uh, conundrum we all face when um, we start working with new deans in particular, maybe some of whom had never really worked in development before, or with development before, there's always that kind of learning curve. So yeah, and I, and I think, you know, when I hear that um, and I think of that, I think the onus is on us. I don't, I don't put the onus on the faculty member. I think the onus is on us in advancement to do a better job of explaining to the academy at large, if you will, but certainly within your institution, who we are, what we do, and frankly, how we can help you. Um, because the more faculty we have intersecting with us, I think, you know, obviously the more opportunity there is. And I guess some of it might just come down to the classic, what's in it for me, right? As a faculty sure. member, as your father, what was in it for him? You know, what if he had better appreciated advancement? What if there was a tighter collaboration and partnership? Um, what are maybe the missed opportunities when that isn't the case? Yeah, uh, I, I think you're right. Um, and it's interesting because um, late in his career, um, he actually, you know, intersected with a donor who ended up funding a big portion of his program. And I think the light bulb went off then, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough. Uh, but, you know, that's uh, usually that's what happens. You're right. It is, you know, look, faculty are busy. We all know this. Um, they've got a lot of responsibility, especially at Research One institutions. Um, and, you know, uh, unless you really understand, um, you know, what the opportunity is and how it could benefit you. I, I understand that sort of notion to say, you know, I'm just going to stay in my lane here. So I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting my research funded, you know, over here, you know, whether it's through NIH or some other, you know, uh, you know, factor that is. Um, but I, I really don't want to take time out unless I know it's going to benefit me. And as we all know, you can't guarantee that. So you're going through your academic experience, you're studying international relations, also international relations grad uh, on this yeah. end of the mic. And so uh, now you're doing it in the late 80s, which probably feels a little bit like deja vu with some of the headlines that we're yeah. seeing in uh, the world today. But um, at what point, you know, kind of what was the immediate path post-college? And I know ultimately you ended up doubling down at Lehigh by way of, or maybe tripling down uh, in light of uh, growing up on campus, but uh, by way of the MBA program. So just help me understand those kind of immediate post-college years, and then the decision to uh, pursue the MBA? Yeah, so I, I graduated in 87. I took a job right out of school, got it through uh, Lehigh's uh, career services, and I was an assistant buyer for a department store. Uh, I was there for about six months, and, you know, I realized it really wasn't going to be my life's calling. Um, and you know, I started thinking about getting an MBA. My faculty advisor uh, had seriously recommended that I get go back and get an MBA at some point. And I thought to myself, you know, look, if I if I land the job at Lehigh, I know they'll pay for it. Right. Um, and so, as you know, luck would have it, um, there was a job open in the development office. I often joke if there was a job open in the admissions office, I would have taken that or administrative assistant in the psychology department. Not that that would have left, a, a, you know, led to my life's calling. But the fact of the matter is it was open and I interviewed and I got the job and, um, you know, little did I know, uh, like I said, I didn't know much about it. But about six months in, it didn't take me long to figure out that, A, I was just working with and for some great people. I mean, great people. And, um, you know, you get blessed in life. And my first uh, boss, Christine Smith, and there's a really interesting story with Christine and how our careers have intersected through the years. 
Uh, but Christine hired me. She was a director of corporate and foundation relations. I, I was an assistant director. And really the first year I spent writing correspondence for the president. I wrote acknowledgement letters to foundations and companies who were making gifts. And then I started writing some proposals. And the interesting thing is in thinking back on it, if you really want to understand an institution, work in the corporate and foundation area, right? Because you, you, you see everything. You see these proposals. You see the work that faculty are doing. You see the impact of scholarships. You understand how endowments work. I mean, just through osmosis by doing that kind of work. You know, Christine took a liking to me. Uh, obviously, she must have seen something in me because she would bring me to meetings. And you know, I'd be in meetings with the provost. I'd be in meetings with the president. Sometimes if a company was coming in, she'd make sure I was there. And I just got exposed to, you know, this sort of this richness of, of what philanthropy is. And, you know, long story short, I mean, I, I you know, it took me five years to get the MBA because I became a major gift officer. I was traveling quite a bit, raising a family. Uh, but by the time I completed it, you know, my, my initial thought was I'm going to get the MBA and go into the for-profit sector. I fell in love with what I was doing and um, really decided to make this my career at that point. And so when you think about now, first of all, let's just say the faculty might not know what advancement is, which means even fewer would have any idea what corporate and foundation relations <laughs> even mean. And right. so just maybe give it. And, and by the way, I bet we have audience members listening who work in advancement shots and they've got a corporate foundation relations group and they don't really know what those folks are up to all the time. So why, why is it so important? Why do you think it offered such a unique perspective into uh, maybe the intersection of community education and philanthropy? Yeah, because corporate and foundation work, it is a niche within, within philanthropy. There's no doubt about that. Um, but it's very akin to writing faculty proposals for federal support. Right. Um, you, you've got to identify programs that are peer reviewed that are going to cut through whether. So if you're uh, if you're writing a proposal to the Keck Foundation or the MacArthur Foundation. Right. It doesn't matter if it's Lehigh University or UVA or DeSales University, for that matter. What matters is the program and the faculty member behind that program, the impact that it's having. Um, and so as somebody who works in that area, your job is to identify those programs, work with those faculty to put their ideas in the, into, into, into paper, into a proposal, then obviously work it through the, work it through the foundation or the company for that matter. And it, you know, the, the, the corporate side is a little bit different than the foundation side because you know, the, 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 there is a relationship oftentimes with the company that goes beyond just you know, a particular program. Um, the intersections are students that they recruit, maybe faculty that they work with in terms of research themselves. Uh, so you can kind of build those ties, but it's very much grant writing. Um, and so if you think about it, um, you know, all sorts of things cross your desk uh, from whether it might be in international relations, whether it might be in finance, whether it might be in some sort of esoteric engineering project, but you really get an opportunity to kind of dive in and understand it all. Well, that was going to be my next question, which is why are they grouped? I mean, everybody has corporate and foundation relations, but they seem completely different to me. Yet for some reason in most structures, it's either one person or one unit. I mean, corporate relations foundation relations, they roll off the tongue as one because that's how we've structured it. Does that make sense? Well, I think it depends on the institution. And, and you, you know, it's, it's a really interesting question you're asking because I've never really thought about it this way before. But, you know, I'm just going to go to Lehigh for a moment because Lehigh is somewhat unique insofar as, 
you know, it's got a strong engineering program, a strong business program. And so therefore, there are there are a lot of alums of, of that institution who go on to lead major corporations. Right. And so at, at Lehigh's in Lehigh's development shop, corporate and foundation relations were not sort of treated as a sort of, you know, thing that sat over here on the right you know, right hand side. As a matter of fact, the vice president uh, at that time, Mike Bolton, came up from the corporate and foundation relations side. That's where he came from. Um, and, and so it was front and center in everything that we did. And even as a major gift officer, you know, I might be working with, um, you know, the CEO of Alcoa. So we would we would approach him not only as an individual donor, but we'd also approach him, you know, from an Alcoa sort of Lehigh relationship. Much different at a place like St. Joe's, for instance, which just you know doesn't have the engineering and sort of that that heavy corporate you know background. So I think it's it's treated a little bit differently and maybe more like most institutions do. But I do think there's an opportunity, you know, for that area in particular to be more integrated. You pursued um, the MBA, which is not that common, and and, and in fact, it, it sort of strikes me that it's a little surprising given the fact that tuition can oftentimes be either waived or very low cost for um, employees of an institution, why aren't more advancement leaders pursuing MBAs, um, especially at schools, you know, that have a business school? Um, should they? I mean, is yeah. that a missed opportunity for folks in the field? And when you reflect on the MBA, obviously it was earlier in your career, but do you, do you lean on that, that toolkit from time to I time? I do. And I'm, I'm, I'm biased, um, but but I do. I lean on it heavily. And maybe maybe because I came from a, you know, a BA, I had a liberal arts background. I mean, I had some courses in accounting and what have you. The MBA to me was a completely sort of new way of thinking. Um, it's different, I think, if you're a finance major or a business, ma you know, accounting major, then you go on to get an MBA. So for me, it, it was a whole new way of thinking that I lean on, and I'm, I'm like all the time from a management perspective, from a statistics perspective, it really taught me how to see numbers and see trends in numbers, things that I lean on every day. Um, and I encourage people all the time, um, you know, in particular to take an MBA, if whether it's advancement or any kind of leadership position, if you, if you have an inkling that you want to lead a company or an organization, I, I think it's a terrific degree to have. Just a, a, a so funny... Just a, uh, go ahead, please. No, just a quick sidebar. Um, you know, it was my my fall semester of my senior year, and my my uh, advisor Dan Sluka, who was a, a Czech and a great guy, he knew me very well, and he said, "Joe, you know, what are your plans after graduation?" And I said, "Well, you know, I said I, I'm I'm gonna, I'm studying for the LSATs. I want to be an attorney." And he kind of sat back in his chair and he said, he shook his head and he said, "Law's not for you." <laughs> he said, "He said, don't take this wrong." He said, "I, I know how you think." He said, you need to get an MBA. And I'll be honest with you, it, it was like a shot to the to the stomach because <laughs> that's what I was really focused on. But, you know, I, I sat back and I thought about it. And um, it turns out that he was right. Not that I ever went pursued a, a law degree, but knowing what I know about it, I think the MBA was a better path for me. And, and who is that individual? His name was Den Sluka. Zednik, Zednik I mean, was his uh, first name, Sluka, S-L-O-U-K-A, great man. Um, he passed away several years ago, but he was uh, just a terrific, terrific uh, mentor of mine. It's just an example, though, of how malleable we are at certain points in our life and our career. And if he yep. had said, Joe, that's a good idea. Yeah. Like one sentence might have radically shaped uh, your 
entire life. And it's kind of exactly. crazy to think about, you know, and I had that same moment. I had a couple of mentors. I played football at Brown. I went to this event one night at the Pizzatola basketball center event space up above, happened to talk to this guy. And it was a, it was like, you should consider investment banking. I'm like, what's that? Never heard of it. Can I have your card? And it's like, it's just one sentence at the right time in your life. It's, it's kind of crazy yeah. how, how, how it is true. It is true. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe, you know, something to keep in mind as we think about, right. Being in a leadership role. And when folks are asking us yeah. for our advice or, you know, our perspective, how, um, one sentence that we might sort of flippantly make in passing can really be taken to heart. Um, it just comes up time and again on this podcast. I, I agree with you completely. And I, I do give thought to that um, on multiple levels, uh, whether I'm just giving you know, advice to somebody who's relatively young um, or, you know, sometimes you realize now I've been a vice president for, for many years, but um, you know, once you get in that chair, you sometimes you forget the impact of one throwaway statement can have on the entire organization. So you got to be very careful about what you say, because uh, sometimes the intentions are not, you know, uh, what you meant. For sure. So your uh, entire life had really been centered around Lehigh University up until this point. When did you decide it was time to kind of uh, leave the nest and uh, spread the wings and um, ultimately settle uh, at Georgetown? Yeah, well, and just a little bit of a backstory, because I think this is important. I talk to people about this all the time, younger people. You know, the first nine years of my career were spent at Lehigh. And I made a number of what I would call contrarian moves. Um, and I've continued to do that throughout my career. Um, and so, for example, you know, I started out in CNFR, Corps and Founds, and then um, I moved into Major Gifts after three years. Um, and But at Lehigh, you couldn't be a Major Gift Officer unless you had annual fund experience, right? So in addition to being a major gift officer, they assigned me five classes, one reunion fund. And so I learned that. Well, the interesting thing about that was about two years, three years into my major gift uh, career, the head job for the annual fund opened up and I applied for it and I got it. And I remember colleagues of mine in major gifts saying, you know, why would no one goes from major gifts to annual fund? Nobody does that. But in my mind, I was already starting to think ahead uh, and I kind of knew you know, someday I wanted to be a vice president. I was a goal setter, maybe, uh, you know, maybe too much of a goal setter. But I realized, you know, something I'd never managed people. I'd never managed a program. And this was going to give me an opportunity to do that. And so, you know, I moved into director of the annual fund. I did that for two years. And it was right at that time I'd gotten the MBA. Um, and in my it was just it was a calling. It, it just felt like I'd learned a lot at Lehigh. I'd done a lot. I accomplished a lot. But I just felt this burning desire to go somewhere else where I didn't know anybody and really see if I could do it, you know, in that set of circumstances. And so I set about looking, you know, uh, let's see what's out there. And I was reading the Chronicle. There was a job open at Georgetown, director of the annual fund. Um, but it was a bigger annual fund, right? You know, I had maybe seven, eight staff. It was maybe a $10 million annual fund. Georgetown's was 25. It was a $20 million annual fund. They were going into this campaign. And, uh, you know, I met Mike and one thing led to another and, and here I landed. But it's interesting because, again, when I was leaving Lehigh, people were saying to me, why would you leave Lehigh's annual fund? You know, 56 percent participation rates, one of the best funds in the country and then go run another annual fund. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Why aren't you why, why aren't you taking a step up, so to speak? But for me, it made perfect sense. 
And, and that's a lesson I, I try to tell people all the time, especially whether you're in advancement or any career for that matter. When you're building your career, don't be afraid to get sort of broad experience early on, because what that does is that catapults you later on, you know, up to leadership positions because you've just gained a, you know, a strong understanding of the entire organization. I mean, I really didn't know that at that time. It was just sort of an intuition from my perspective. I kind of knew, okay, I knew how to, you know, I knew, I knew I knew how to, you know, become a major gift officer and raise those kinds of dollars. I had the corporate background. I had events experience, but managing people and managing a program is a completely different thing. And, um, you know, so I, I think that's an important lesson throughout, throughout all of this and a theme that throughout my career. And so tell me about um, transitioning to Georgetown and going from literally knowing as much about the institution you worked at probably as anybody could possibly know to not even knowing maybe the motto or right. the fight song or I still don't you know, know what Hoya Sachs any means, of, to be honest with you. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so so what was it like? I mean, how, because there's there's the combination of both um, right, bringing a skill set, a playbook, a perspective, a background, but then also just all of that kind of institutional, you know, culture, history, tradition. How do you balance just getting yeah. to work versus absorbing what was a very different environment than the one that you'd literally grown up in? Yeah. And, and look, um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I didn't have a couple of moments where I said, oh, my God, what did I do? Um, you know, Georgetown was an intense place. And um, and we were going from, you know, a shop of about 75 people to 250 uh, in about a period of two years. Um, when I started there, the working goal for the campaign was 300 million and ended up being uh, a billion dollar campaign. And this was in the late 90s, early 2000s when, you know, there weren't too many billion dollar campaigns in those days. Um and this is where Mike Goodwin comes in. Um, you know, Mike was my, uh, you know, direct uh, supervisor and he's great. I mean, you've, you know, people who listen to that podcast and people who know him understand that about him. Mike is just um, an amazing leader. Um, and, and a main reason for that is because he cares about the people that work for him. He really gets to know them. And, um, you know, he was just a strong mentor of mine. He's, um, he has high standards. Uh, you know, he, he was very clear on what he expected, um, but he was there to help. Uh, and, you know, tell me what, you know, where are you struggling? Where do you need help? You know, those kinds of things. And, um, you know, that was a big part of it. Um, and, and then at the same time, too, uh, Kathy Jones uh, was the VP at those days. Mike was the AVP. Kathy Jones was the vice president. And, and she was a savant in terms of building large organizations. I mean, she was just bringing all these people in from all over the country, frankly. And I was one of them, uh, one of many that were joining the organization. Can you think about how hard that is to do? You know, to take an organization from about 70 people to 250 inside of two years, bring in new people, letting go of old people, you know, that, that whole dynamic, but she did it seamlessly. And, you know, when I think back on it, you know, I learned how to become a fundraiser at Lehigh I really learned how to become a strong manager and a strategist during my time at, at Georgetown. I mean, that's really what Mike brought to the table, Kathy, as well. And if you think about, you know, Joe on the first day at Georgetown in 1996, good fundraiser, but needing to learn management leadership versus leaving in 2004, 
what was the before and after? I mean, you know, as you even think about almost like a self-evaluation of how you grew, what are things that you maybe did or how you approached the work in 2004 that you just wouldn't have had intuition for in 1996? It was night and day, I'll be honest with you. Um, I think uh, I remember this very well. I mean, my, you know, like a lot of managers, when you start out, you know, my, my, my notion of a good manager was that you treat everybody the same. And while there's something, you know, very, you know, honorable about that, it's ineffective. And, and it was really Mike uh, one day we were talking and he said to me, you know, Joe, management is, is situational, right? Um, you can have somebody who's really good at what they're doing and they're doing very well and you promote them into a new position. But you just can't assume that they're going to they're going to fly in this new position. So, you, you know, it's important to get close to them. It's important to make sure they understand what their goals are, how you support them. And, you know, that light bulb went off with me um, in many ways. And then this this other notion um, that along the way was, uh, you know, you really manage to your best people, right? Manage to your best people. Um, you know, in any organization, you're going to have some A players who stand out. And so it, does, it, it they may not all be at the top of the organization. Some may be way down in the organization, but identify who those people are and make sure you're supporting them. And at the same time, you know, especially in these larger organizations, you, you know, when, when people are underperforming, you either got to coach them up or you got to move on. Because if you don't, the better players leave. Right. They, they take notice of this and they seek out, you know, excellence somewhere else. And, you know, those were two of the sort of the mainstays that, that I learned from Mike and others while I was there um, that are with me today and have followed me throughout my career. You just used two words that I want to double click on. You referenced coaching and players, right? And and I think one of the you know we're we're a growing organization, right? We were we were three people uh, at one point, and now we're almost two hundred. And right, the way that you get to know people at two hundred is a lot different than the way you get to know uh, people in a smaller group setting. And one of the things that I think we've been you know wrestling with that I'm, I'm always struck by how easy it is in sports. And it feels like some of these things should translate to work and they just don't. Like I think yeah. about all the coaches I had throughout my life. And you talk about things like, do we have a feedback culture? Like what coach, what team <laughs> that's worth anything wouldn't have just like an inherent real-time constant yeah. feedback culture, right? Do it this way, not that way great job, double down on that. Hey, I saw you do this. You didn't bring your A game in today's practice. And then we come to work and we tiptoe and we dance. Yeah. And we, it's like, why are we so, both as players on a field, inherently accepting of feedback and then we walk into work? Like, why can't we just be like athletic yeah. coaches? And maybe that's where you got to uh, by the end of your time at, at, at Georgetown, but that's just something that, that I've personally struggled with. Like, why am I okay? By the way, I am a, you know, youth coach on the side, right? Nights and weekends. I did that too. I have no problem directly yep. providing feedback to those players, even if they're six years old. Uh, you do it a little different then. Um, <laughs> why do we dance? You know, why do we, why do we dance around it at work sometimes? Yeah, I, I think that's a really good analogy. And I find that the best leaders uh, who, who are able to bring about high performing teams have that mentality and they can they can they create that kind of culture. It's, you know, obviously it's a little bit different when you're coaching a team. You've got a bunch of people who are just looking at one person and 
um, you know, they're, they're driving the bus and an organization is complicated. And, and so you got to delegate to your, your leaders and things along those lines. So it's incredibly important to have a leadership team that kind of buys in and then back. So back to Mike, right. Um, because I've been, you know, fortunate to have worked on a couple of high, really high performing teams throughout my career, sometimes as a participant, uh, and a couple of times as, as a leader myself. And, um, and perhaps the best one I was on was the one that Mike led. Uh, in those in those days. And, you know, it starts with people who have domain expertise. So everybody sitting around that table brought, you know, they, they were experts in what they did, whether that was advancement operations, major gifts, annual giving, you know, and there was a level of respect among the group. But the secret sauce was Mike's ability in particular to when, a, you know, a problem or an opportunity uh, came up, he would put it on the table and everybody had had free reign to dive in on it. It may be an issue in major gifts, but the head of alumni relations, his, his point of view and the per person running advancement operations, her point of view were just as important. And together, right, you, you, you get at solutions in a much more collaborative way. And sometimes these ideas emerge from different sources and, and off you go. And, you know, that's a hard thing, I think, for any leader to do, uh, frankly, you got to have the right people around you. And Mike just had an ability, myself notwithstanding, to, to identify, you know, extremely talented people. Um, I mean, you know them, Sean Scoville and Matthew Lambert, right? Uh, Kevin Heaney, who's now at Princeton. I mean, the list goes on. And these were the people we were working with, I was working with. And then we had fun on top of it. I mean, it was it was a blast. It wasn't just, you know, grinding, um, you know, every once in a while we'll have an opportunity to get on the phone together and we spend more time laughing uh, than, than just about anything else. And, and I miss working with them terribly. And so but that's, I think, a, a real tribute to the, you know, the, the leader in particular to create that kind of culture. It's hard. And you shared earlier that you were a goal setter, right, that you weren't shy about aspiring to be in a senior leadership role. Clearly, the Georgetown Mafia is strong, and it, it attracted a bunch of goal setters who <laughs> uh, I just hosted Armin Asahi, who was right after your time at Georgetown, yep. I think, and you know certainly Matthew. And, um, and so at what point did you start thinking, okay, I have really grown a lot during this period. I've watched a great leader lead. I am ready to Go for it. Yeah. Um, you know, what was going on was the campaign was ending um, and, and Mike was was leaving. We all kind of knew that. Um, and it was under you know great circumstances. Uh, he was going back to the West Coast. Uh, and so, you know, it, you know, things were kind of open at that point in time. And, and it just so happened that I was getting recruited by Father Landon, who was the president of St. Joe's. Um, and, and Tim um, had been in the chair for about a year. Prior to that, he was VP for development at Marquette. Um, and Tim's a real special guy um, and a terrific leader. And, um, you know, again, a contrarian move. Um, I decided to, to leave Georgetown and go to St. Joe's. And I remember one of my dear colleagues saying to me, you know, Joe, if you, once you leave a big institution, you probably can't get back. You know, you're going to a smaller place. And I thought, you know, maybe. Um, but it's a chance to become a vice president. I really believed in what Father Landon was doing. Um, and it was, a, it was a great move for me. Um, you know, it was my shortest stint, but the three years um, I had under Tim's leadership uh, were seminal. Um, just a, a fantastic president, uh, a great man, a great leader. Um, and we had, a, you, know, you know, another really good, good point in my career. 
And then the opportunity to come full circle back to Lehigh, was that, I mean, I imagine you maintain those relationships and maybe it's worth asking sort of, right, you talk about stewarding relationships by way of the work we do in advancement, but, you know, how do you think about, I mean, you just mentioned getting the band back together from time to time uh, with the Georgetown crew. I mean, how intentional were you about staying in touch with folks at Lehigh? And frankly, when you left, you know, it's one thing to have a goal of, I want to be a vice president someday. It's another thing to have a goal maybe of, I want to be a vice president here someday. So I'm going to go yeah. build my portfolio of work, build my relationships and networks. But when, I mean, was it already kind of, was that, was that on the aspirational list um, even when you left? Yeah, um, it, it was. I mean, that was my goal, frankly. At some point, uh, I wanted to get back to Lehigh's VP. And, and so I, you know, it's easy because I'm an alum. And, you know, I, it's going to football games, I'm going to my reunion, um, but I knew the trustees, I stayed in touch with them. Um, just maybe an interesting sidebar story, because uh, this, this, is, this is pretty cool. Uh, I mentioned it earlier, Christine Smith, you know, Christine was the woman who hired me uh, way back when in 1988, and Christine and I always stayed in touch, and she was one of my biggest champions. And when I arrived at Georgetown, I was there for about a year and she, we were talking on the phone one day and she told me she was coming down to Washington. She went to have lunch. She was interviewing at the Smithsonian. And I said, you know, Christine, if you're thinking about coming to D.C., come to Georgetown. We were hiring people. So one thing led to another. And she joined uh, Georgetown as uh, director of development for the School of Foreign Service. So really, for the next eight years, we were colleagues on the leadership team together. Um, and then when I ended up at Lehigh and I'll come back to your question in a second. Um, uh, as vice president, the number two position was open. Christine was still working uh, in Washington in those days, but I remember I called her and I said, "Hey, you know, could you give me three years and and work for me? Because um, I need somebody who understands what I'm trying to do uh, to really kind of run the operation." And of course, she she agreed, and um, you know, the whole our careers kind of came came full circle. Um, and she retired after three years, and she, you know, she she was a big big proponent of the case, highly involved, just a great development professional. I owe a lot to her. And can I ask, you know, just from a broader, I don't know, market context, you joined Lehigh basically, I don't know, five minutes before the financial crisis or maybe five yeah. minutes after it started. But, yeah. Yeah. you know, after having worked in such a, I don't know, wildly kind of successful Georgetown campaign during, you know, there were some ups and downs uh, during your time there for sure, but nothing. No, it was straight up. Like the <laughs> it, it was yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm thinking about like the, the dot-com bus sort of happened. Yeah. You know, there, but, but a lot of that maybe wasn't. It was mitigated. But it, yeah. That was mitigated by the fact that Georgetown had so many great alums who just frankly we hadn't been in front of before. Um, it was, yeah, but you're right. Um, you know, at that time, I, I started at Lehigh in 2008 uh, as vice president working for uh, Alice Gast, who was in her second year as well, who I think was just a terrific president for Lehigh and did many great things. Um, but the quietest period in my fundraising career was 2008, 2009, without a doubt. And it was because of the volatility, right? I mean, because nobody knew, right, what, where the shoe was going to land. And so, I remember saying to the team, look, let's just keep the relationships open. That's all we can do. Just keep talking to people. Let's make sure they're doing okay. Make sure they know that, you know, what we're trying to do here. And once things settled, as you know, everybody, you know, had a lower net worth than they did when it started. 
but at least they knew. And then, you know, the fundraising really began to open up again. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, kind of an interesting period of time. Yeah, I mean, look, we're definitely not uh, day traders in the advancement space, but when you uh, think about just the psychology of the donors um, relative to the market landscape, that had to be a really interesting period because nobody knew how far the knife was going to fall. And, and when did we really hit bottom? And I'm sure that it was a, a period of, of stick to your stomach decline. And then, you know, by the end of it, I mean, it was actually an incredible bull market that, you know, maybe just right now we're starting to see, um, you know, some, some, some of that same volatility, hopefully not yeah. at that level that we saw in 2008 through 2010. Um, but I, I guess I'm curious, like, if you can recall, how do you, how, how did you balance sort of treading lightly, you know, trying to be really thoughtful of the donor psyche, but at the same time, at some point, right, mission needs funding and impact needs, you know, to happen. And I don't know, like, what was yeah. the almost, yeah. like, how do you move from let's just pause to let's get back out there. We got money to raise and problems to solve. Yeah. Uh, that's a, you know, excellent question. Thinking back on it. Um, you know, Lehigh has a pretty heavy wall street crowd. Okay. Um, there's a large contingent in New York, many of whom are trustees. And so we tapped into that, uh, rather than try to play a guessing game, uh, we engage them, you know, tell us what you're thinking, tell us what you're seeing, uh, help us kind of figure out what we should be doing strategy wise the members of our development committee you know most of whom you know you know were on wall street uh and so they helped us sort of formulate and they were with us with the strategy uh people kept giving you know there's no doubt about that um but they were just giving at lower levels and but the strategy of stay in front of people right make sure they understand what we're doing just don't go silent really paid off um, because in, you know, 2009, as we started to come out of it, you know, our fundraising really, really began to take off because we kept those relationships warm. We'd stayed in front of people who were having honest conversations with them. They were having honest conversations with us, you know, they basically, look, I want to do this. I can't do it at that level, but I can start doing something now. But look, I can kind of see in two, three years where this may go. Let's keep this moving. And that's exactly what happened. Um, but we really leaned on our trustees and, and those donors in particular who are sort of right in the thick of it you know, from a Wall Street perspective. And that's the value, right? I mean, you think about it, you know, in our in our positions, I mean, we get to tap in so many people. If you look at your board um, and, and sort of the, the diversity of the board, you know, certainly from a career perspective and an expertise perspective, I mean, if the board's constructed the right way, you're going to have people you can tap into no matter what the situation is. And I think as advancement professionals, we know how to do this. Just pick up the phone, call people, you know, and, and hey, what do you think? You know, I'm struggling with this a little bit. Uh, I'd love to get your perspective on that. And people love to provide that kind of advice. And then it helps you as you're managed through because you don't feel like you're managing it on your own. You know, you're actually managing it with the people who are helping lead the institution. And that's all. There's some comfort in that. And then an opportunity emerged to go back to St. Joe's. You're now serving in the senior vice president for university relations. Um, what does that mean relative to vice president for development and alumni relations? Sort of what is the scope today relative to um, prior roles that you've held? And then I also yeah. just have to say, look, it's August of 2022. We've just lived through a uh, 
unexpected transformational period. And I'm yeah. curious what lessons you've learned um, over the last couple of years, maybe, uh, yeah, just any reflections as you think about kind of this post-pandemic period and kind of what goes back to normal and what maybe never goes back to the way it was again. Yeah, um, I'll answer your, your first question first. The portfolio, my portfolio is just a little bit different in terms of I have government community relations attached. So, you know, pretty large external role, um, not just with uh, fundraising, but in the city and the region, et cetera, federal funding, things along those lines. Um, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's like anything else. Um, our experience in 2008, 2009 helped. And I think if you, you know, you stay in this profession long enough, you're going to see those cycles. I'm starting to see it now for the you know, second, third time through. I've been in it for nearly 35 years. Um, and we, we took a page out of that playbook. Um, now, in our situation, you know, in 2019 going into really 2020 going into 2021, we had uh, opened a lot of commitments uh, in that year. And so um, understanding that there was just, you know, distraction, uh, everything else going on, the mantra to our team was just close what we've opened. You know, let's just stay in front of those. Let's get those gifts closed. Because if you think about financially, people, you know, weren't affected. Um, it was just emotionally and, you know, from, you know, your lifestyle, everything else was affected. Um, and so that was that was the charge. And so we had a, a relatively strong fiscal 21. Um, the harder thing was getting appointments, right? Um, it was it was easier in some ways for people like myself and some of the senior gift officers, because if you have relationships with people, you know, you get on Zoom, you can still have a conversation. But if you're starting out and, and you're one of those people building a portfolio, you just realize it became very difficult uh, to get those meetings. And so we had to, you know, adjust, adjust our pitch, how we we're getting in front of people rather than, you know, requesting meetings, let's even get 10 minutes, right? Um, it's just an opportunity to make a connection and you, know, we, you have to adjust. And part of that is listening to the, and I'm, you know, we all do this, but listening to the people in the organization, right? The people who are closest to market, the ones who are struggling, it's like, oh, tell us what's going on. What are you hearing? What are you struggling with? And then maybe we can help you, you know, coach you up, uh, figure out a new way to you know, get at this. But that was, you know, pr pretty much our mantra. And, um, I think we all know, I mean, you do this long enough, um, you're gonna see those ebbs and flows certainly in the macroeconomic cycle and you gotta be able to adjust. I think we're probably seeing another one right now. We've also heard, um, you know, stories and reflections coming out of the pandemic where look, when, when the president is now a Zoom link away from every donor or when a dean or faculty member who in the past we would have spent six months trying to align travel schedules to go meet the right person is now boom. Yeah, I can join. I'll be there for the first 15 minutes of the zoom call and then I'll, I'll move on. I mean, in, in some, yeah. you know, many instances, we actually heard of like elevated stewardship experiences, like far less friction, even though it was in this digital environment. And so my question is like, does that yeah. continue or do we sort of just revert back to, when can the faculty or dean get out there on that trip with me? No, it's a great point. Um, I think parts of that are here to stay. I remember uh, uh, Dr. Reid, our president, actually Mark is leaving, uh, but he was our president throughout the entire time. Uh, you know, he and I would, you know, set up, uh, you know, small, you know, events, if you will, Zoom events, and we'd have people from Dallas and California and all over the country. And we'd joke, we'd say, you know, that would have taken two weeks. <laughs> you know, that would have taken two weeks out of our lives on a plane, you know, visiting each of these cities to have that 
one you know hour long you know sort of meeting update if you will um and and so there are elements of that no doubt are going to stay um the hybrid work environment i believe is here to stay and frankly i think advancement it's been in a hybrid work environment forever um because if you're a major gift officer uh you know you're spending most of your time out out the door anyway but it's it's here to stay for everybody i i, I firmly believe that i think there are a lot of benefits to it um but i also think um you know you, you know it's what i was saying earlier um how we struggled or how some of our younger people struggled struggled getting new appointments uh, now that they've got that down, what we're finding is people are much more um, willing to hop on a Zoom call for 15 minutes to meet with somebody for the first time than they are having them come to their office or to their home. So it's it's almost like it's reversed itself. So there are definitely going to be elements yeah. of this that are going to stay. And it's like anything else. I think we have to stay attention, you know, pay attention to the market. What is the market telling us? Uh, let's not assume anything. But at the same time, too, like uh, next weekend, we're having an event um, uh, in Avalon, New Jersey, you know, for, you know, it's a donor event and we'll have 70, 75 people there and I, people can't wait to get there, right, to see each other. We had our, we kicked yeah. off our campaign in May, um, large in-person event, you know, we had, you know, 400 people, um, you know, there is that, there's sort of that pent up demand to connect with each other. And, and look, any institution, it's a community. It's a community of donors, it's a community of alumni, it's a community of faculty and staff. And so much of it is, you know, seeing the place and being being together. And we miss that. And so there's, a, I think, an appreciation for that too. So I, I think it's, you got to, if you're being smart, I think you're looking at both of these entities and evaluating how they're working. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. I mean, look, where even in the context of today's economic environment, right, it's been a, a, a confusing six months, interest rate rising, what are the implications for that for the market, et cetera, et cetera. But even this week, Airbnb blew out their earnings report. Uh, hospitality through the roof. What's struggling? You know, there are certainly, uh, you know, people aren't buying TVs the way that they were two years ago when we were all locked up at, at, at home. And, you know, Disney Plus subscribers aren't through the roof the way that they were, but there's clearly a, a hunger for experiences. And then I look at that, you know, even uh, I'm involved with the Brown Football Association. Last Monday was our golf outing. Absolute record attendance, people yeah. showing up to that golf outing. But then the flip side is, to your earlier point, we have now flipped our board meetings to Zoom conversations, and we have record attendance of people from all over the country who in the past we would have said, can you be in Providence on a Saturday morning before a football game for a board meeting? That made no sense. And so yeah. it's like, what is going to, what is, what are we going to double down on? Yep. What are we going to get back to because we can, and it's what people want. I do hope the, I'm going to get on a plane and spend a thousand dollars to come out and have a first time discovery visit. I hope we leave that in the past because if Same I here. can't get a Zoom conversation yeah. and have a meaningful connection, if you won't take my Zoom meeting, yeah, I better not be spending a thousand bucks hoping that my amazing yeah. in-person presence is somehow going to inspire generosity. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm no, off. no. I, I Brent, I agree with you one hundred percent, and that's why I think you've you know we are wise if we kind of look at all of this as as more tools in the toolbox, so to speak. And, and the market will tell us. The market's going to tell us what's working, what's working better than something else. And as long as we're paying attention to that and willing, you know, to, to be open minded, um, you know, those, I think that's where we're going to you know, see some advantage. No doubt about it. Yeah. All right. Let's stay on the macro thread a little bit, because you referenced we do a little questionnaire in advance just to get some talking points. And um, you're one of the few people who has proactively referenced the impending consolidation in higher education. 
Yeah. Why did you put that uh, down? And, and just what's your perspective on, I, I feel like it's, it's this, uh, you know, the storm on the horizon that nobody really wants to talk about because it's kind of depressing. And, uh, you know, it, it, it just, it sort of feels like it's bigger than any one person can control. So I feel like we kind of sweep it under the rug from time to time. What's your take on it? Yeah, I think we're on the front edge of a major uh, transition in higher ed. Uh, you know, this industry is changing just like any other, but as you know, these institutions aren't built for change. Um, it's being driven by technology, certainly. It's being driven by uh, shifting demographics, especially if you're in, if you're in the Northeast. Um, but I also think there are just too many schools uh, and certainly questions about the value proposition, which I think is a false uh, false narrative, but we do a lousy job of, of countering uh, that argument as, as an industry. Um, but there are too many colleges and universities. And just looking at where St. Joe's is located, right? We're in Philadelphia, uh, the Delaware Valley, as we call it. There are 150 institutions within a 50 mile radius, right? Think about that, 150. There are, I think, 10 Catholic institutions or close to 10, right? In, in a relatively compressed you know, uh, you know, area of the country. Now we're an exception, but the reality is they're just, and you look at the demographics, there's just not enough demand for the supply. And if this were the for profit Not, not sector, only, yeah. If, if I may, not only are there 150 institutions in that area, but there are, I don't know, a thousand online programs yeah. that are also marketing to and recruiting those students that are physically in your backyard. And, and so that's exactly, an evolving right. dynamic. And that's where technology comes in, right? You can get access to a higher ed degree in so many different ways. If you want a fully residential experience, you, you choose one path, but that doesn't mean it's the only path. And you're right, you've got that whole dynamic going on. Um, and, and, and so, you know, you, you think about this, if this were the for-profit sector, this shakeout would happen quickly, um, but it's not. These are not-for-profits. These are institutions run by alumni, alumni boards. There's an emotional you know, uh, you know, attachment to them. And so they're going to go down slowly. Uh, and I don't I want to be macabre here, but I mean, that's really what's happening. Um, part of the reason why I said it too, because we're, you know, we just experienced it, right? We just merged new sciences. New sciences, for those who might not know it, is an excellent, I think it's the, it's the country's first pharmaceutical school. It used to be Philadelphia College of Pharmacy expanded uh, to call itself U Sciences in the 90s. It has a lot of you know, health uh, professions in addition to pharmacy, very strong institution, but a niche institution. And um, you know, they hired a consulting firm to find a partner a few years ago. And you know, we ended up being, being that partner. It's a smart move for us, right? Because we needed to be more aggressive in the health professions. We really weren't as strong as we needed to be. Uh, U Sciences, uh, frankly, was was looking for somebody to come in and 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 frankly save them. Um, and so the two institutions have merged. We 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 solidified that in June first. Um, and basically, the, the the beauty of this is, from an academic standpoint, there's hardly any overlap and a lot of you know synergy and integration. Um, from, a, from an administrative standpoint, you know, we don't need two development offices. We don't need two admissions offices. We were able to kind of, you know, streamline uh, those aspects of things. Um, it's been a heavy lift, but a real interesting experience. And, you know, we're, you know, maybe the, you know, not the first, but we're on the front edge of this. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this going on, uh, you know, throughout the nation over the next five to 10 years. You know, there are a lot of boutique investment banks out there, but I don't know if anybody has really cornered the market on higher ed consolidation yet. You might know better than me, but but that is definitely, uh, uh, yep. you know, who knows who hangs that shingle, given everything you just shared. 
I, I, I think you're right. Um, I don't know if anybody is, you know, sharpening your pencils on that right now. I bet there are, <laughs> I bet there are because it's opportunity. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be well thought out. It's gotta make sense for the institution, both institutions. And that's not always easy to do. Um, but it is possible Jefferson university, uh, and, and, or Jefferson hospital and Philadelphia, uh, textile, if you will, uh, merged four or five years ago. So they were really the first in our area. I think, you know, now we're the second, but you're going to see a lot more of this going forward. I want to ask you just to comment on something you you referenced around telling the story. I mean, we hear so many press, you know, media headlines around questioning the value of higher education, student loans, et cetera, et cetera. Yet anybody who's worked around development constantly hears stories of life-changing higher ed experiences. I heard one of those just this morning. And every time I hear that, it's like, yeah, where is our PR game? Yeah. I know. On just like taking like discovery qualification visits that go well and turning them into stories that counter all of those negative narratives. It's, it's yeah. almost at, at today's, I feel like it's like no one has ever benefited from higher ed. Like that is the narrative right now, which is I know. mind boggling to hear yeah. and it must drive you crazy. It, it does. It frustrates me to no end because, listen, I, I think when I really get going on this, not that I want to wax too poetic, but U.S. higher education is the envy of the world. It's the envy of the world. I mean, people come from all over the world to study here and largely because of our system and the faculty and the academy, certainly. But it's also who we are as a country, uh, free speech. I mean, the, the, just, you know, what's in our Constitution, the, the entrepreneurial spirit that we have. It's the reason why U.S. higher education is the envy of the world. And yet it's probably one of the industries. I'm not saying the only, but certainly one of the industries in which we truly lead the world. I fundamentally believe that. And yet we don't treat it that way. Right. It's just it just gets bashed all the time. And then it's our own fault because we don't fight back or we don't fight back effectively. I think as individual institutions, we do. I, you know, I look at, you know, websites and, you know, how people are telling their story. And I think everybody is doing a pretty good job, by the way, some better than others. But frankly, telling their stories so they can attract graduates and, you know, research and, and, and fundraising, et cetera. But as a collective, it's just there's there's no singular voice pushing back on the value proposition. Um, which is, you know, it's infinite in terms of, you know, what happens to you when you, when you, when you pursue and receive a college degree versus, you know, those that don't. And it's not belittling anybody. It's just the power, frankly, of, of, of a higher ed education degree. And I would argue a residential higher education degree. I mean, because there's, you know, that's the other side of things. I don't think it's talked about enough. Um, because I think if, when you get a residential degree and you're, you're living there for four years, you know, it's what you learn outside the classroom is equally important as what you learn inside the classroom, how to fail, how to build relationships, how to have conversations with people who may be different than you, have different perspectives and how to understand that and how to, you know, right? It, those are the things that go, as you know, that, that's, that's what goes on during those four years. Um, but we, we just don't do a good job as an industry of, of countering that argument. And it is frustrating. I think that's well said. It is as an industry, where's the industry voice? Um, because the, the narrative, the other narrative is very much industry wide. And I think, you know, the individual success stories that we're trumpeting for enrollment purposes, maybe they get the job done for this year's class, but they're definitely not getting the job done in the societal view. And uh, there's been no greater source of socioeconomic mobility in history than higher education, yet it is yeah. the punching bag um, of, uh, you know, 
of, of many different uh, parties at this point. Unfortunately, we're coming up on time and I have to give you an opportunity to just shout out your team, sort of what are you excited about today at STU? And then ultimately, uh, are you hiring? And if folks want to stay in touch, what's the best way to connect? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and, and, you know, Brett, thanks for the time. It's, it's been a real pleasure. It's flown by quickly. Um, yeah, I, I would for, for a moment. Um, you know, we talked about uh, leadership teams and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the team I'm, I, I happen to work with right now. It's at St. Joe's in advancement. It's Katie Shields and Marty Farrell and Tom Chase and Tom Fifty and small but mighty. And I like to think, I'm not sure I'm as good as Mike, but I like to think that I'm deploying some of the same techniques I learned from him. It's a, it's a group of strong people uh, and uh, we know how to get at it. We know how to really kind of, you know, solve problems together, which is terrific. And, you know, it's not always been the case. I've, you know, you have some hits and misses along the way, but this, this, this team is extremely solid. Um, we are hiring. Uh, I think everybody's hiring these days. Uh, you know, it's, it's one thing we're trying to retain people. Um, and, uh, you know, what I find, and sometimes it's a feather in our cap, you know, what happens at St. Joe's is we'll hire people. Um, and we've got a number of people who've been with us for, for years, uh, and they're very good at what they do. But inevitably, you've always got those people who are kind of spinning through. They'll stay, they'll stay four years, but we're losing them to places like Princeton and to you know Drexel and the other institutions. I always find that that's a real feather in our cap uh, when that happens. And, and and this may sound strange, but I use that <laughs> as a way to to recruit people, uh, especially who may be earlier in their career, to say, look, you know, you can you're going to come here and you're going to get a great experience. We're, we have cutting edge technology. We have training for gift officers. We really take this seriously. It's a performance-based operation. And, you know, if you earn it, you're going to move up in this organization. But, you know, chances are you also have, also have an opportunity to go to other places and hear some of the places some of these people have gone. So, you know, you use what you got, uh, frankly, uh, depending on the market that you're in. And if folks want to stay in touch, uh, LinkedIn, email, what do you prefer? Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's the best way. Um, I'm active on it, uh, Joe Kender, um, and uh, that's how I stay in touch with so many people, frankly, uh, and just reach out to me there. I'll respond, believe me. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't give Tom Chaves a shout out. In fact, I was with my family on Monday um, traveling in Chicago, and we went down to the, uh, there's this great river walk area right in the middle of Chicago, right in the loop now. And it was probably three, four years ago at an AASP conference that uh, uh, Tom and I went for a run together. Tom is truly a prolific marathoner, uh, yep. having, uh, I believe, completed one in, in all, uh, all 50 states at this point. And so uh, I was just with my family on Monday and uh, they were commenting how beautiful the, the area was. And I said, I actually went for a run with a, uh, with kind of a, a professional colleague at a conference right right here. So, uh, Tom, if you're listening, we're due for a uh, for a follow up run here, maybe at the uh, the ASP conference in a couple of uh, weeks here. Yeah, Tom Tom is amazing. I uh, just quickly, you know, I worked with him first at Lehigh, and he is as good as it gets uh, in you know, advancement operations. And I was somehow I convinced them to join me um, at St. Joe's. And he just what he's unbelievable. Um, the way he you know works with systems and people, but his portfolio has expanded now. He has annual fund. He has alumni relations uh, reporting to him. The only the only knock on Tom is that he's a Mets fan, but uh, we'll, we'll we'll let him slide on that. But you cannot knock the passion, and I respect no, the passion cannot. for sure. No, you cannot. Yeah. Love it, love it.
Well, thank you, Joe. And frankly, thank you, Tom, for, you know, being a, a partner on the journey, um, which, which certainly uh, in part uh, led to today's conversation. And, and, and Joe, just, yeah, thank you for sharing your journey from, uh, you know, three-year-old running around the Lehigh campus to, uh, uh, to an experienced leader in the space. We really appreciate your time. And, and with that, um, for today's episode, I'm going to sign off with Joe Kender, Senior Vice President for University Relations at St. Joe's. Take care, everybody. Thanks, Brett.